So Hebrews 11, starting at verse 1 to 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. In verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, we've spent some time thinking about faith and learning from these great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, and tonight, uh, let's bring it all home, shall we? And it'll help you a lot to have Hebrews 11 open in front of you today. We'll move around a little bit tonight. And let's pray that God would help us to understand His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that You would soften our hearts so that we might not just hear what You have to say to us, but that we might even be changed. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, coming up on the screen now is a lady I'd like to introduce you to. Her name is Florence Chadwick, and she was a very famous American long-distance open-water swimmer. I actually really enjoyed reading about her this week. Uh, she broke a lot of uh, records. She did a lot of firsts. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel in one direction and then the other direction and then both at once. Um, and in 1952, she uh, set out to swim from the coast of California to uh, Catalina Island, some 26 miles off the coast, or 42 kilometres. Uh, and it was a tough swim. She endured choppy waters, a possible shark attack, and extreme fatigue for 15 hours. But she still hadn't reached the shore. And uh, she became discouraged, and a, a thick fog set in, and she just gave up, uh, and she just couldn't go on. And so they, they fished her out of the water, and when they did fish her out of the water, she realized that she was less than a mile from her destination. And two months later, uh, Florence Chadwick came back to do the swim again. This time, the same fog came up, and in fact, the fog was even worse this time, but this time, she made it. And when they kind of talked to her afterwards and asked her, you know, what was the difference between the two? Why did you succeed now, but you, you didn't succeed the first time? And she said, look, the first time, all I could see was the fog. And so I, I got discouraged. I couldn't go on. But this time, I kept a mental image of that shoreline in my head the whole time while I swam. Visualizing the destination was how she persevered in her journey through tremendous difficulty. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you about how visualizing the destination uh, can help us to persevere in our Christian journey through tremendous difficulty, which is a really long and complicated way of me asking you, how much do you think about heaven? How much do you think about heaven? How much do you think about that new creation that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us? 
And for me, to be really honest with you, it's not very much. Sometimes life here is just so good and so easy and so enjoyable, it's easy to imagine that I've already arrived. What more is there that I could look forward to? Other times, life is so hard that the blinkers come on and all I can see is the the hardships and the wrestles and the struggles that I face. And I'm so inconsistent, I can feel both of those things on the same day. But I know that if I fixed my eyes on heaven, if I dwelled on it more, that it would be life, the Christian life would be much better. If I reminded myself often that one day, actually, far too soon, all this will be over and I will have eternity to enjoy. That this life is just water getting a little shallower and that one day I will step out of the water and onto the shore of eternity like Florence Chadwick did in 1952. And that's where I want us to lift our eyes today. Today I want us to to, to catch a glimpse of really what we've been trying to catch a glimpse of of the last few weeks and that is a glimpse of our eternal home where the Lord Jesus has promised to take us and to lift our eyes to see the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on there and particularly to see the Lord Jesus Christ who has gone before us. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks and you know all this began back in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 11 with a discussion about the nature of faith. And come back there with me now, would you? Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you again. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, of course, many people in our world today believe that faith just means kind of blind belief, that faith is a a kind of mental process that replaces reason. It is belief without evidence, and at its most extreme, it's belief despite evidence. It's belief despite any proof to the contrary. Faith, many would say, is just a, a superstition these days, you know, a blind leap in the dark. But that's not what faith is, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is not belief without evidence, it's belief without sight. Uh, It's the assurance of what we do not see. And you can believe things that you have not seen, uh, you just need good evidence for them. And so what in Hebrews chapter 11 have all of these great ones of the past, what have they been believing in without seeing? And the answer is they've been believing in the final resurrection. They've been believing in heaven, the new creation. And why can't they see it? Well, for one very simple reason. It's not that they're looking in the wrong place. It's just it hasn't happened yet. It's not here yet. And so they just, they can't see it. And so what evidence have they believed in? They've believed in the promises of God. They've believed the word of God as he has spoken time and time again of what his plans are and what he promises his people who trust in him. And really all that Hebrews 11 has been, when we've boiled it down, has just been a very long list of people to whom God has made a promise about the future and they have believed God, they've, they've trusted that promise. Let me give you a few examples really quickly. What about Noah? Uh, Noah, in, in verse 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. In the time of Noah, God said, I'm sending a flood, I'm going to wash it all away and I'm going to start all over again. 
And you know what? I'm sure that when the people of Noah's day saw the water coming, I'm sure that when the water was over their heads, they believed God. But when did Noah believe God? When God spoke. Noah believed God, even though he had not yet seen, because the flood hadn't come yet. And so he built the ark and he was saved. Or then there's Abraham in verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He had not seen it. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. You know, by faith, when God told Abraham to go to a foreign land, to get up, leave the home of your fathers and go to this foreign place, Abraham both went and he settled there. Because God promised him that one day... Abraham would own all of this land. The descendants of Abraham would inherit all of the land. And the rest of the chapter is exactly the same like that. Sarah, in verse 12, she's promised a son. And what does she do? She believes God. She trusts God. In verse 33, there's judges and kings and prophets who are, they're promised kingdoms and they trust those promises because that's what faith is. Faith is a trust in the promises of God, not what we can see, but what he has spoken. Now, what are all these promises that this chapter has been about? Well, in one way or another, every single promise in this chapter has boiled down to being a promise to save people from death. Uh, So, uh, a great example of that is Enoch in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Noah, so Enoch was, was saved from death. That was what God promised to do for him. So was Noah. Noah was saved from the flood. Abraham was saved from what he saw as the death of childlessness and, and not having an heir, not having any descendants. But the point is that all of these promises in one way or another, they've been a promise to save these people from death. And it's that promise that they were trusting in. But that's what they were hoping for. Their faith in God was that he would provide what they were promised. And yet, as we saw last week, right at the end of chapter 11, the writer of the Hebrews says that actually none of these people have received what they were promised. None of them received what God said they would receive, at least not fully, not completely. Even the ones who were rescued from death for a moment, well... They're dead now, aren't they? And so listen to verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. But, you know, how can that be true? I mean, they were saved from death, weren't they? You know, Noah did get on his ark. Abraham did get his son. Isaac did get off the altar. So how can the writer say that they've not received what they were promised? And the answer is because what they were being promised was actually much bigger than they understood. What they were being promised was not just that they would be saved from death once, not just that one day they would close their eyes in death and then open them again for for one moment, for one another lifetime or something like that. No, actually what they were being saved from was to be saved from death forever. That actually when they opened their eyes again, they would open their eyes to a new life, an eternal life, to an immortal life. That's what God was promising them to die and yet to receive 
a better resurrection. And because that's what they glimpsed, some of them, they really were willing to die. Have a look at verse uh, 35 there, the second part of verse 35. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. They knew that all these pictures, all these stories of, of God saving people from death, they were really all just a picture of a much greater salvation that God was promising. Their resurrection to come, the better resurrection of a a new creation where they would be citizens forever of the new city of God. And that's why they kept trusting God's promises to the end. They knew it wasn't just about their life, it was about a whole new nation of people that they might experience a life with God forever. Uh, Abraham and his family were a great example of this. They knew that they were being saved not just for themselves, but that they might be a new people of God. So verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's what they were looking forward to. A new life, an eternal life with God forever. And the writer of the Hebrews even tells us why it is that God has not yet given all of these ancient heroes of the faith what the better resurrection that he promised them. Back in in 39 and 40 again, you know, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. Verse 40, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do you see what God is doing? Why did they not receive what God had promised them? Because God was waiting to give all of us what he has promised. God was waiting for all of us to be saved. God was waiting for all of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ to bring them into the new creation so that everyone can enjoy it together. And so that the Lord Jesus Christ might be the one who takes us home together. Home to that place where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or loss. That place where we will live with God and without sin. That place where even the best moments of our life now will feel but pale and fleeting shadows compared to the joy of the new creation. But we're not home yet, are we? We're not home yet. An old missionary couple had been working their whole lives in Africa and they were returning to New York City. They had no pension, they had no money of which to speak and Their health was shot and frankly, they were discouraged. And as it happens, the boat that they were returning on was the same boat that President Teddy Roosevelt 
was on as he was returning from Africa on one of his great big game hunts. And as the boat kind of pulled into the dock, there were thousands upon thousands of of people there, crowds of people flocking to the wharf to welcome and catch a glimpse of the great man, President Teddy Roosevelt. But there was no one there to greet this missionary couple. And the man, he turned to his wife, upset, and he said, something is very wrong here. Why should we have gone, you know, given up our whole lives in service of God all these years and yet when we come home, there's no one here to greet us. And yet this man comes home from a fishing, from, sorry, from a hunting trip and everyone makes a fuss over him but no one gives two hoots about us. And so they slipped unnoticed from the ship and went to a hotel. And that night, the man turned to his wife again and he says, I I just can't take it anymore. God is not treating us fairly. And his wife very wisely said, well, why don't you go into the next room and talk to him about it? And so he did. He went and prayed. And a short time later, he came back, but this time he was calm. And his wife said, well, what happened? And he said, you know, I, I, I settled it with God. I told him how angry I was and how bitter I was. I told him how frustrated I was that the president got such a huge homecoming when he came home and yet there was no one there to greet us. And when I finished praying, I felt as if God put his hand on my shoulder and said, yes, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. My brothers and sisters, we aren't home yet. However good our life is here or however hard our life is here, we aren't home yet. And so what are we to do with our lives before we do go home? Knowing that we are waiting for the better resurrection when we finish. Well, says Hebrews 12, we're to run. Hebrews 12 verse 1, therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See that's what the Christian life is, it's a race, it's a race where you have to persevere, it's an endurance race, it's a marathon and you know this year 2024 it's an Olympic year. I love the Olympics. And what's the the penultimate event of the Olympics? What's the the grand finale of it all? It is, of course, the marathon. And I love the marathon. It's it's probably my favorite thing. I mean, I love a marathon, not not enough to actually train and run one, but, you know, I love the marathon. Uh, And the Christian life here, it's pictured as a marathon. And, you know, like a marathon, the Christian life can be lonely. It can be hard. It can be very difficult to finish. And, you know, I, I always really kind of feel for those marathon runners, especially when they're, they're out there on the road. You know, it does look lonely. There are, are so many things that can hinder them. There's so many things that can entangle them. There's, there's so many things that can discourage them and mean that they do not finish. And that's the same for the Christian life, isn't it? There is so much that can hinder us. There's so much that can entangle us, the suffering, the sin. There's so much that can discourage us. There are so many things that can stop us from finishing the race. But you know the part of the marathon that I like best? 
It's the part where they kind of finally come around the corner and they come into the stadium at the end. You know, after all that time on the road, all that time on their own, labouring by themselves, where all that they can hear is the beating of their own heart and the labouring of their own breath, and all that they can feel is the pain in every cell of their body. And then they see the stadium in the distance and they can hear the, the murmur of the crowd and then they run through that corridor and then they kind of shoot out into the stadium itself. And the buzz, the murmur, it becomes a roar as 100,000 people get to their feet and they cheer for you as you race down the track. The crowd screams, run! That's got to feel good, doesn't it? To hear thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people cheering for them to finish the race. My brothers and sisters, you have millions upon millions upon millions of people cheering for you to finish the race. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And every believer who has ever lived, and every single one of them is on their feet yelling at you, run! There's Abraham, the father of the patriarchs. He spent his whole life walking all throughout the Middle East, but he's on his feet yelling for you to run. Then there's Moses banging his two great tablets together, cheering for you to run. Then there's Noah. You actually you know which one Noah is because Noah's had enough water in his life. He's the only one who doesn't stand for the wave. But he's still yelling, Run! And then there's Enoch. He's looking around going, I never even died. But run, run. And there's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're in the no smoking section. And they're yelling, run. Everyone's calling for you. Everyone's cheering for you. Everyone wants you to finish the race. Friends, you see, the Bible is, it's not just a book. The the Bible, it's a stadium. And every time you open it, You can hear it roar, run! And you've seen marathon runners, haven't you? You know, you've seen the people who are really, really serious about running marathons. I got a a lecture this morning from someone who's really serious about running about shoes and how important they are. But, you know, you've seen those marathon runners. When you're running a marathon, you don't want to carry a single gram of extra weight. Because every little bit of weight just makes the run so much harder. And my friends, Hebrews 12 says that's what sin is. Sin is extra weight. Extra weight that you do not need. Extra weight that makes the run harder for you. And actually, it even makes the run harder for everyone else who's trying to run around you. And so run. But as you run... Get rid of it all. Get rid of all of the sin that entangles. Get rid of it all that hinders us and slows us down. My brothers and sisters, the commands of God are not written to us to make life harder. They are written to us to make the run easier. God is teaching us how to run. How to persevere in the endurance race that running the Christian life to the very end always is. And yes, you might feel very alone as you run, but you're not. You are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a great cloud of witnesses cheering for you. And you can read about them every time you open the Bible. 
But most importantly, you have Jesus. The one who has gone before you. Hebrews 12 again. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, what's the most encouraging thing of all? Jesus has already run this race. And in a very real way, all we are doing is following his footsteps. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's gone ahead. He's cleared the path. He died the death that we deserve to die. And now the very great reward that only he deserves, he promises to us. And he has risen in the way that one day we too will rise. In fact, if you want to see clearer than anyone else, anywhere else in the Bible, what the resurrection, what the new creation will be like, then fix your eyes on Jesus. And even now, he rules on high so that you can finish the race and live with him forever. And he's the one who even waits at the finish line ready to embrace you and take you home. My friends, I do not know what your race looks like. I'm always willing to to hear. I'm always willing to sit and you can tell me and we can pray together. I'd love to do that with you. But I don't know what all of our races look like. What I do know is that it will always be full of hurdles I know it's hard. I know it's full of heartache and pain and joy. Keep running, won't you? Keep running. Run hard. There's lots to be done for the Lord. There's so many people we want to join us in this race. And remember, too soon and it'll all be over. Too soon and we will step out of the water and onto the shores of eternity to live with Jesus forever. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of heaven. We haven't seen it, but you've promised it to us. And so we know it's real. We know, Lord, that this life, too soon and it'll be over. Too soon and we'll step out onto the shores of eternity. And yet, Lord, the race is hard. It is a marathon. And so, Lord, we ask for your help to run. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Without that, we won't make it. Help us to see him, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. 
Help us to run in his footsteps. And help us to look forward to that day when on the finish line he will embrace us. When he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will take us home. Amen.